0: This episode of Indie Film Weekly is brought to you by Musicbed. Since 2011, Musicbed has been changing how filmmakers license music by creating a roster of the world's best indie artists and composers. With dozens of helpful search filters and curated playlists, your perfect soundtrack is just waiting to be discovered. It doesn't stop at the music, though. Their blog is filled with great content, from in-depth interviews with leading film minds to short films and live sessions with their musicians. Head to musicbed.com to learn more. Welcome to Indie Film Weekly, a no-film school podcast. I'm John Fusco.
1: I'm Emily Booter.
0: It is March 30th, 2017, and on this week's show, Chaos at CinemaCon, Video reigns supreme on Facebook, and Richard Kelly talks the re-release of Donnie Darko. And as always, news you can use about new gear, upcoming deadlines, indie film releases, and Ask No Film School. (laughs) (laughs) We don't know how to start the show, (laughs) but we'll do our best. We're not as as good as, at it as Liz, but hey, this is John and Emily, as we said in the introduction, and we're here Lizless this week, but we're still gonna give you the best show you've ever heard.
1: We're coming at you from downtown Brooklyn, New York, and we're bringing you everything you might have missed while you were busy making movies.
0: Yeah, that's the that's was that a good that's that a what, what we
1: comparison? say. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, um, yeah, Liz is on vacation this week in Hawaii, and Emily and I are holding down the fort, uh, getting through all of our South by Southwest coverage, and, um, you know, just generally having a great time <laughs> together.
1: I would say, uh, yeah, great time. Yeah.
0: yeah, really good time. So, what's been happening? in the world this week, Emily, while we've been busy making our movies?
1: Well, this week, all eyes in the industry are trained on CinemaCon, or Hollywood's annual gathering of studio and theater owners in Las Vegas. And of the many, many topics of conversation there, there's one that's causing more headache and ulcers than any single other. And it's basically turned the conference into a convention of chickens running around with their heads cut off. That's because this topic concerns the future of the film industry at large. Okay, so when I say theatrical windows, what do you think of?
0: I think of a window in a <laughs> Good theater. Good job,
1: John. Is that right? Uh, sort of. I personally imagine a dreamy home theater setup and uh-huh. it has these Lush red curtains, and when you draw them, you're looking at a beautiful bay window that magically turns into a theater screen at the touch of a button.
0: Wow, what a visual imagination you have.
1: Well, yes, but weirdly, that little reverie of mine isn't actually so far off from reality. Theatrical windows do indeed have everything to do with home theaters. The term specifically refers to the period between a movie's theatrical release and when it becomes available for at-home consumption, which usually means streaming because we're in 2017. In accordance with current agreements between studios and theaters, audiences have to wait at least 90 days to stream first-run releases at home. Of course, this is a distinct idea from the day-and-date release model, where movies are released in theaters and on demand on exactly the same day. So we've got ourselves into a bit of a quagmire with this CinemaCon situation. See, the problem is that film revenue generally needs to grow, and it needs to grow badly. Right now, it's shrinking. Hence all the panic. Global box office revenue leveled off at $38.6 billion last year, which was up only 1% from 2015, and that was mostly due to inflation. So it's not a lot to write home about. Meanwhile, due to the decline of DVDs, home entertainment sales have fallen 50% to $12 billion in the past decade. This is bad news bears because home entertainment is one of the studio's key profit drivers. As Chris Aronson, head of distribution for 20th Century Fox, put it, quote, post-theatrical revenues are plummeting, so we have to figure out ways to make up that shortfall. There's a lot of careful and thoughtful consideration going on. At CinemaCon right now, that, quote, careful consideration is code for a push to shorten theatrical windows. 20th Century Fox, Warner Bros., and Universal Pictures are leading the charge on an effort to cut windows in half, making films available to watch for around $30 30 days after they hit theaters. This is a controversial idea, which naturally has its opponents in theater owners, who will be hit the hardest if audiences are no longer incentivized to see films in theaters. Studios are trying to appease theater owners by proposing deals where they get a cut of the revenue, but that doesn't change the fact that if these new VOD deals go down, the power is actually shifting into the studio's hands. Currently, exhibitors have the upper hand over studios when it comes to collecting box office revenue, because the theater cuts the check to the studio for their share of the gross. With VOD, a studio would collect cash at the sales point, and they would be the ones to cut a check to the exhibitor. Disney has also come out adamantly against shrinking the windows, because its success is predicated on blockbusters, like superhero movies and franchises like Star Wars, which, as the numbers show, people still want to pay to see on the big screen. To make things even more complicated for the headless chickens running around CinemaCon, each studio would have to reach an individual deal with exhibitors because of antitrust laws, which protect healthy competition in the business market. As of this recording, it's chaos. No deals have been made. There's a general lack of consensus even between the studios that all want shortened theatrical windows because no one can figure out how much they're going to cost or how long they should last for And the big X factor here is lack of information about consumer behavior. We have no idea how well VOD releases do because we have very little public data points. We don't know whether audiences will still go to the theaters in droves if they can watch the same movies at home, and that would effectively make them cheaper if they do it in a group. So we're in for a bit of a bumpy road here. Studios are notoriously slow-moving, risk-averse beasts that like to make decisions with precedence. The very business structure at studios is by definition not entrepreneurial. The question is, can studios adapt? Many prognosticators are saying winter is coming. So where does this all leave indie films? In many ways, the future is nigh. Many people have already shifted their viewing habits to see mid to low budget movies at home. We're here already. One adaptation has been the day and date model, which I mentioned earlier, and that's meant to drive ticket sales by embracing streaming. The theory goes that streaming a new indie release builds word of mouth, and that drives momentum for people to buy tickets in the movie theaters. Here at No Film School, we've interviewed many filmmakers who have had a great deal of monetary success across VOD platforms. The indie world is much more adaptive and much more resilient than we like to give it credit for. Another solution here in New York, we've got a coterie of art house specialty theaters. Many of them, like Nighthawk, Syndicated, and the New Alamo Draft House, enhance the theater-going experience by offering food, drinks, and super comfy chairs. So the more you position movie going as an event, the more attractive it becomes. Of course, we don't have access to ticket sale numbers at those theaters, but based on the fact that at least two of them have recently turned into chains, perhaps this is part of the answer for indie theatrical movie going.
0: I think it would make sense for studios to actually kind of reward people for going to, the, like going to the theaters rather than staying at home, so like if they were going to be charging people for... Uh, you know, like like a group of people to watch it at home, it should be like substantially more than it would cost for someone to go to the theater alone. Do you know what I mean? So it's like they charge what, like sixty bucks um, t- for someone to have the movie screening at their place um, because there'll be six people with that person, right?
1: Right. That's what Universal wants, but many people are saying that that number is too cost prohibitive and that people aren't going to pay for it. But, so, then,
0: but then if they don't pay for it, then they would go to the theater, so it would be sort of like a win-win situation, right?
1: You would think, but what that would really do is just keep us in the position that we're in right now, which is people aren't going to the theater and they want to pirate movies and have them immediately accessible for download. Mm, so pirating. we're kind of, yeah.
0: We haven't really gotten into pirating at all.
1: Yeah. yeah. That's the other X factor. Honestly, we don't know how it's all going to shake out. I guess the question we need to be asking ourselves is, will these new glass coffins be a success?
0: Remains to be seen.
1: Great. That was the punchline. Great, great.
0: <laughs> Can you explain the punchline? I know it's it's harder. The joke isn't going to be as funny, but I...
1: Well, yeah. So when you ask about glass coffins, you know, there's remains <laughs> that are seen.
0: Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. All right. Know. So it remains to, to be, be seen. seen.
1: Yes. <laughs> or if you don't like that joke and you don't think it's funny... <laughs> Actually, my ex-boyfriend told me that joke, so shout out to him. Okay,
0: right. Well, (laughs) shout out. (laughs) Now you're you're shifting the blame since I don't (laughs) like your joke.
1: You can also take a cue from Sony motion picture chairman Tom Rothman, who said something quite direct to the CinemaCon audience after screening a clip from Blade Runner 2049 on Monday night. And what he said was, quote, Netflix my ass.
0: I like that better. Yeah. So, like, if it was, how will it shake out? I guess the better question is
1: Netflix my ass. (laughs) Yeah.
0: (laughs) Will you Netflix my ass?
1: Yes. (laughs) The answer to that is, I don't know.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And moving on to our next bit of news, a recent study that Facebook performed found that users find video five times more engaging than images. So as we all know, Facebook has quickly become the place on the internet for exhibiting video. There's tons of places out there, Vimeo, YouTube, what have you, but Facebook has this whole native thing now too, and they actually sort of prioritize the videos that are uploaded into Facebook natively. So it really depends on if you have the right sort of following, if you have like an established following in place, then this seems like a pretty good strategy but if you're just trying to get noticed it doesn't hurt to put like videos on as many platforms as you can but we're going to focus on Facebook for now last month its top 10 publishers alone raked in 17.8 billion views and again these are like larger publishers in the sense of video heavy pr- publications like unilad lad bible tasty which does like short food videos, and the Dodo, which does all Puppies. these puppy, cute animal videos. So it's it's not surprising that these are the top 10 publications and that they're raking in this many views. But Facebook was determined to find out if there was a scientific reason for why their users are more actively engaged with videos. So they recently conducted a study of participants in the UK and UAE, and discovered people in those regions of the world gazed at video content on Facebook and Instagram five times longer than they did static content. This study derives from an experiment where people's eye movements and facial expressions were tracked as they scrolled through their personal feeds. This was followed up by interviews about the role video played in each participant's life. The 114 participants were aged 18 to 30 and watched short-form online video content and ads at least once a month. And based on the data that they found from the experiments in the study, Facebook discovered that 64% of UK participants increased their video viewing over the last year alone, and 79% of UAE participants said their video intake has increased over the past 12 months. So Facebook went ahead and tried to find the factors that attributed to this increased popularity of online video watching, and they say that smartphones, shorter attention spans, binge watching, the importance of context, and the thrill of novelty are very important for online video creation.
1: Speaking of novelty. That's not a very novel finding. <laughs> no. I don't think we needed science not. for that.
0: But, you know, we can't really hit the hammer on the head hard enough with this stuff just because it's so sort of mystifying and there's, it's so hard to really get a gauge for how your video is doing online. Um, I went to a panel at South by Southwest where uh, one of the founders of Short of the Week actually was featured, and he said it's not about how many views you have, it's about getting the right views. So from a filmmaker's perspective, you, know, you want to be targeting platforms where your video is going to be seen by the people you want to see it. So like-
1: And the people that are going to talk about it.
0: Right. So, you know, Facebook doesn't really seem like as serious of a film sort of uh, vibe, but if you're looking for just trying to get your content out and seen, it couldn't hurt. At so-
1: least for promotional material too. hmm
0: So, in light of this development, the website that I found this story on, Your Insights, recommended that video publishers focus on mobile content. Harnessing the power of Instagram, whatever the hell that means. Our intern will tell us, though, soon, I think. Look out for more Instagram posts of our faces. Keeping your content short, of course, and uh, trying new video formats, which we are seeing a lot, actually, from uh, distribution companies and studios that are actually making four, three trailers now, so that you can watch um, your trailers in vertical on your phone. And now here's Charles
2: Hain with some gear news for this week. Good morning, everybody. So first off, in gear news this week, HDR is possibly the future, and Sony is putting a big push behind their implementation of HDR. They use Hybrid Log Gamma, otherwise known as HLG, and they do a proprietary flavor of HLG using their S-Log, which is a gamma that most of you who've shot Sony cameras in the last decade or so should be familiar with. And they use a combination of HLG and S-Log as a way to make HDR a really easy to implement system, especially at the high end. So you're already starting to see HDR broadcast using this proprietary Sony system. Well, now Sony has announced that they're going to add some firmware updates this summer to the FS7 and the Z150, bringing their implementation to an even wider spectrum of cameras. If you're not familiar with HDR, it's technology that allows for a much wider variety of brightness to be recorded in an imaging system. To see results, you need an HDR-capable monitor, but one of the nice things about all the competition in the TV industry is that home TVs are already offering some version of HDR playback, making HDR capture more relevant every day. With these firmware upgrades, we're gonna see a whole lot more cameras available that capture really wide, latitude HDR imagery, and uh, we should see a lot more of that content on our home TVs soon. Next up in gear news, uh, Leica, has released the Talia prime lenses for large format cameras. Uh, the large format cinematography market is heating up with the release of these new lenses from CW Sonder Optic, which is the company that does motion picture adaptation for Leica. These are designed to cover the larger 65 millimeter sensor size of cameras like the Alexa 65, and the new glass gives more options to filmmakers looking to shoot large format imagery. A lot of the time in the past, if you were doing an Alexa 65 job, there were only a few options from Aerie directly. If you were doing a large format Panavision job, Panavision actually has four different lines of large format glass. but. Up till now, you were pretty much looking at glass from Aerie or Panavision. Um, As far as I know, Cook doesn't have a large format line yet. And it's really great to see Leica, who are really popular uh, with their Summicron and Sumalux lines of glass, come out with large format covering primes. These lenses have slash eye data contacts and they all cover a 65 millimeter image circle which means that they're going to be a popular rental option for both digital and film projects shooting larger formats. I say rental options because each one of the lenses will cost fifteen to twenty thousand dollars. yeah that was a perfect whistle John I'm gonna get whistling. They all feature 270 degrees of focus rotation, and they have rear element filter mounts, so you can use nets on the rear element of the lens for image manipulation, um, which can allow you to create a lot of good effects that you can't create in post. Last up in gear news, uh, Atomos has added a Ninja Inferno to their line, giving you 60p capture at half the price of the Shogun Inferno. So um, the Ninja Inferno from Atomos is custom-made, almost, for working with the GH5. The GH5 does 10-bit recording, but it doesn't let you do 10-bit at 60 frames a second. You go down to 8-bit for that. If you want to do 60 frames per second and capture 10-bit 422 in 4K, you need to go to an external monitor, and the Ninja Inferno is a really great option at under $1,000. So, when you compare it to the big brother, the Shogun, which is around twice as much, the features Ninja is missing are internal raw recording and SDI inputs. So if you're working with bigger cameras, you might want to invest in something like the Shogun. But if you are working with GH5 or other popular cameras that only have HDMI out, the Ninja Inferno is a really great option at this price point. It uses the same 1500 nit high brightness display as the Shogun, so this is HDR ready for cameras that are capable of giving out an HDR dynamic range, and it's going to open up a lot of cool slow-mo possibilities for GH5 shooters and others.
0: Great. Thanks, Charles. And we'll be heading to NAB in a few weeks, so Charles will be joining us for that. Mm -hmm. And uh, we'll have all that news on all the latest gear coming out. We came out with like 100 videos last year. so. Stay tuned for that in a few weeks. Uh, We're going to take a break right now, but we'll be right back with Charles for this week's edition of Ask No Film School. Life happens in 360 degrees, and now on Vimeo.com, so do your videos. Now you can upload, watch, and even sell your 360 videos on Vimeo. Vimeo 360 means immersive eye candy, immersive adventures, and immersive storytelling from the world's best filmmakers. Plus, Vimeo has tons of helpful resources for all experience levels. You can learn how to shoot, how to edit, and even get roundups of the best 360 video gear. Join the new home for 360 video at vimeo.com 360. And we're back. All right, Charles. This week, Voldemort Pross asks, hey, guys, here's my scenario. My girlfriend is a wedding planner, and we will be scouting new venues soon. We want to film her walking around, checking out the premises inside and outside, so I'll be filming her with a Lumix G7, and she will be commenting something along the lines of, oh, Here we have a nice pool. And the garden is quite spacious to have barbecues. The bedrooms are in the style of blah, 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 and so on. We might also throw a couple of interviews with the owners into the mix. So here is where the real question starts. What kind of microphone would I look for? Do I want something attached to the camera or something attached to her recording to a separate device? I'm after something that's easy to use as it is our first recording ever. So Charles, what kind
2: of uh, mic situation do you think this guy should use? All right, well, that's a great question. An on-camera mic would really only work as a backup. It's always worth throwing like a $100 on-camera mic on your camera so that you've got something getting better than the internal mic. But when you've got moving subjects and if your camera's not directly next to someone's face all the time, that audio really only serves as like an emergency backup. It's never going to be the clean, crisp audio you're used to hearing. What I think you want is a wireless lavalier. Your subject, your girlfriend, is going to be walking around a lot, and you're not going to have the manpower to bring out a boom operator, so a wireless lavalier is going to let you record her dialogue cleanly. A lav, if you haven't worked with one before, is a tiny microphone you hide somewhere on her body, usually under her shirt, using tape or clips. It will run a tiny little wire to a transmitter, then that'll send the signal wirelessly to a receiver that you mount on your camera and wire into your camera. You could use a unit that records on her body, but I recommend against it for two reasons. One, if you do that, you're then going to have to worry about syncing it up later, which isn't super hard, but it means you're going to have to use a clap slate to have a sync point, and with the run-and-gun style production you're doing, it doesn't seem like that's likely to be useful. Worse, you can't monitor it in real time. With a lavalier, you really need to be listening as you go to make sure the mic hasn't fallen down, isn't rubbing on the fabric of her shirt, and you're getting the audio you want. Another option would be giving her a handheld microphone that she's talking into, and then if you're doing an interview, she can point that handheld at the person that's being interviewed. The problem with that is it's going to start to feel a lot like an 80s newscast, and I don't think it's going to fit the like glamorous wedding vibe you're going for. If you go lavs, for an interview, you could then use a separate handheld mic for the person she's interviewing, or you could use a separate lavalier for whoever's being interviewed, running that into the camera as well. Um, There's a lot of great articles on lavaliers in No Film School, so look through the archives, and good luck. It sounds like a lot of fun. Awesome. Great response, Charles. My
0: pleasure. See y'all at NAB. Woo. And here's some movies coming out this week. On Amazon Prime Instant, you can start watching There Will Be Blood as of April 1st. It's hard for me to pick a favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movie, but if you literally grabbed a gun and put it to my head and forced me to, I might have to pick. This movie,
1: and thank God you did because it's objectively the best one.
0: You think so? Objectively?
1: Objectively.
0: You you really think that uh, it doesn't? It's much better than any of his other films.
1: Yes, I think it's a freaking masterpiece. Why do you
0: like it so much? If you don't mind me asking.
1: Oh sure, Um, I just it's one of the most cinematic movies I've ever seen. Totally. It's well, the cinematography is incredible. Um, The performances, especially from Paul Dano. Um, I will never forget his performance in that movie. And, of course, Daniel Day-Lewis. And the story is so deeply American and so um, epic.
0: Yeah, especially now it's deeply American. It's my favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movie because Daniel Day-Lewis just gives one of the best performances of his career and therefore really one of the greatest performances of all time because he is one of the greatest, greatest actors of all time. He plays a turn of the century prospector named Daniel Plainview, who will stop at nothing to make his fortune and take people's milkshakes from them. It's a dark, spiraling, and beautiful character study, also featuring Paul Dano, as you said, and really was what was like a career making role for him. He was pretty good in Little Miss Sunshine, but this was his, like, whoa, that guy can actually fucking act.
1: Coming to Netflix March 31st is Charlie McDowell's sci-fi The Discovery, which the streaming giant picked up out of Sundance earlier this year. You might be familiar with McDowell's previous work. If you saw The One I Love, it starred Elizabeth Moss and Mark Duplass as a couple whose weekend getaway turns into a surreal exploration of their crumbling relationship. The Discovery has an exceedingly darker premise. It's about the afterlife, which has just been confirmed, and people are taking their lives in droves to get there. The problem is no one knows exactly what it entails. They just know that there is some sort of life after life. The film is an existential, humanistic sci-fi starring Rooney Mara and Jason Segel as strangers who fall in love amidst all the chaos. Robert Redford plays the debatably evil genius who discovered the afterlife and is intent on perfecting our ability to understand it, no matter what the human cost.
0: That sounds like a really awesome movie.
1: I think you would love it, John. Yeah. It's right up your alley.
0: And you know, like, it's always great seeing Robert Redford play either like an old nice guy or an old, like, mean
1: guy. (laughs) He's equally great at both. Yeah. (laughs) I actually spoke to Charlie McDowell a couple weeks ago, um, and we got into a really interesting conversation about why he chose to go with Netflix. I mean, this was a Sundance premiere, presumably it was there to get theatrical distribution, and yet he chose Netflix uh, for the deal, and um, he had some very interesting reasons behind it. So here's what McDowell had to say about the whole affair.
3: What's really cool about Netflix is, you know, on March 31st, the world has access to my film. and, you know, 100, 100 million users in 150 countries or whatever it is, like, they 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 are able to watch my film, and, and I made this film for people to see. I made it for different types of people, different backgrounds, different cultures. Like, they all, you know, the hope is that you sort of bring the makeup of you, who you are as a person into this movie, and that's how you interpret this film. Um, and so the idea of it opening in, you know, 60 screens in like just film going U S cities. Um, I, I think it's a disservice to the story. Like I, I think it's, you know, I, I made it cause I want to see it. And so the other reason is I think it's definitely a movie that I hope, um, you know, people watch more than once. And I think that you, you get something different from it the second time you watch it. And, um, And and it's so, it's so easy to, that's the Netflix model, you know, it's like you could watch it and then I feel this, you know, I still have that feeling. I go see movies in theaters. I, I want ultimately for my film to be on a big screen and, and that's the way that I think. But I think you have to like, I think people have to check their egos a little more. Um, and, and ultimately, you know, like, I, I, I'm i in such an incredible position, and I think if I was demanding that this was only to be seen on a theater, then I don't really know the point of making the film, you know. Um, right. So I, I think that there are movies. I, I'm, I'm sure that there are. In fact, I know that there will be stories that I want to tell that I will want people to see in the theater and have it be a traditional theatrical. So I'm not saying, like, I only believe in the Netflix model, but I love that the Netflix model exists within a world of also theatrical films.
0: And coming to HBO on April 1st, you can check out Kix... We're getting close to the 2017 edition of the Tribeca Film Festival, and this was a favorite of our founder Ryan Cooz at last year's fest. It's directed by Justin Tipping, and it's about a 15-year-old whose dream pair of Air Jordans are stolen by a local hood.
1: What's a local hood?
0: It's like a, like a, a gang member, like a uh, local gang member.
1: <laughs> Thanks for letting me know.
0: You're welcome. I got street knowledge. <laughs> So he goes off with two of his friends on a dangerous mission through Oakland to retrieve his Jordans. It also features the acting debut of the notorious B.I.G.'s son, Christopher Jordan Wallace. That's a
1: very strong name.
0: Well, Christopher Wallace was Biggie's real name, so he's Christopher Jordan Wallace. I'm learning
1: so much right now.
0: I am streetwise. So, So Emily, what theatrical release are you most excited is happening this weekend? Wow. (laughs) Creepy.
1: (laughs) Well, I'm personally thrilled to announce that Donnie Darko is getting a 4K restoration in theater starting this Friday. I discovered this cult classic when I was a nerdy 11-year-old, and it cracked my mind wide open, showing me the possibilities of cinema beyond the rom-coms that my friends were watching. And thank God it did. I immediately showed all of my other little nerdy friends, and when I finally made my parents sit down and watch it with me, they seemed more than a little concerned about why I found this incredibly dark film about death and an isolated teenager so compelling. Needless to say, this was the defining movie of my childhood.
0: We would have got along as children, because I had a very similar experience. I don't think I was 11, (laughs) that's like a little young, but uh, maybe when I was in high school, like, I found it, and then I showed all my friends it. Like, I made them all come over and watch it. And then we went to this girl's house that I liked, and I was like, let's watch Donnie Darko. And it, it might have freaked her out, actually, more than it ended up benefiting <laughs> me. Darkness but...
1: lives inside you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's interesting because um, I, I was going to get into this later, but I might as well just talk a little bit about it now. Um, it is a cult phenomenon. And... Um, When it first came out, it completely flopped. Like It premiered at Sundance. Nobody dared to touch it because the script was so original and the film was incredibly genre-bending, and distributors had no idea what to do with it. So it didn't get picked up. And when it finally did, after the festival, it completely flopped at the box office. Like, complete flop. But nobody can ever doubt my commitment to Sparkle Motion because I've seen the film more than 50 times. In case you're unfamiliar with this legendary movie, it takes place in October of 1988, when Donnie Darko, an isolated and incredibly smart high schooler, is visited by a menacing silver rabbit who tells him the world will end in 28 days, six hours, 42 minutes, and 12 seconds. In his quest to understand the rabbit's message, he discovers that he can use portals to travel through time, and he eventually learns, sadly, that every living creature on Earth dies alone. That's all I'll say, because if you need it explained anymore, you better turn this off right now. Go buy tickets to this movie in theaters. Otherwise, go suck a fuck. Nice. (laughs) Last week, I had the pure pleasure of speaking to Richard Kelly about the re-release. Kelly miraculously made this movie at the age of 25, fresh out of USC film school. Um, As I said before, it came out, it was a major flop. Um, He thought that the movie was DOA but the, its cult success taught him some very interesting lessons about the nature of being a daring filmmaker. Here's Kelly on what he learned from the whole Donnie Darko experience.
4: The the, the knock against this movie coming out of Sundance was that it was impossible to market, or that it was just uh, unreleasable, or that it was incoherent. It was just, no one knew what to do with it. You know, It was just like this sort of weird thing that no one knew what, they, they didn't know how to, sell it. They didn't, they just, um, it was just, it was just unique and and bizarre and, um, and disturbing. Um, it was also, you know, it was right after the Columbine massacre, really. It was a lot of that feeling of people saying no to the movie because they, they thought it was, uh, very troubling. You know, we have a teenage kid who fires a gun. Um, that was not something that made people feel comfortable um, and it's not intended it's meant to be disturbing it's meant to be very troubling um but at that time people were were not enthusiastic about distributing something like this into the marketplace they they felt like it was um, destined to fail um, and it was it was ultimately it was destined to fail and it did fail. But time, you know, time heals wounds, and and uh, the any film is going to ultimately be judged in eternity. You know, it's gonna it's gonna it's gonna be judged far far beyond the lifespan of the, of the filmmaker who, who who made it. You know, it's uh, so I think this film just needed time to to, to marinate, and people people needed to. Take their time with it and then discover it and then tell their friends about it, you know. So it was just, it, it was a path that it needed to take for whatever reason. And, you know, it would be nice to have big box office success and to have an opening weekend, um, with a really high per screen average. You know, I haven't really ever, I haven't, that's never happened to me, but, um, I'm still working away here and we'll hopefully, you know, maybe on the next one we'll have some, some box office success so I can make more of these and, 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 quick succession and there won't be you know, years that go by um, but uh, listen I, I'm, I'm grateful for these opportunities and, and, I, and I don't take it for granted. Anymore.
1: By the way these are the words that got me and probably John too through middle school.
0: Well high school because uh, you were, you were you caught onto it younger than I did.
1: <laughs> well, I'm really glad school was flooded today. Why is that?
0: Because you and I never had this conversation.
1: They're weird. Sorry. Yeah, that
0: was a compliment. Also coming out in theaters this weekend on March 31st, to be precise, is The Death of Louis XIV. I caught this one at New York Film Festival last October, and I was pleasantly surprised by it. I wouldn't say it's a happy film or one that's even very exciting, but it is a painstakingly accurate depiction of the final days of the French king, Louis XIV. Anyone enticed by that?
1: (laughs) Actually, yes. (laughs)
0: Yeah, I mean, it's really about death, like really hard about death. And uh, one personal story I'll share was it was a really hot day, and I was running to the theater, and um, I was very thirsty, but I was late to the movie, to the screening, so I didn't have time to get a drink or any water, and the entire movie... Louis is drinking water and, like, calling for water and asking for water because he's dying (laughs) and, like, his mouth is always parched. So it was really a transcendent experience for me, and I was very thirsty.
1: That's, like, the kind of dreams I have when I'm really thirsty. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. And And like, I'm King Louis. (laughs) I'm so thirsty. It's
0: a very, like, dreamlike film in that sense. Um, The sets, costume pieces, props, every part of the production design is just incredibly extravagant and detailed, and you couldn't make a painstakingly accurate depiction of Louis XIV without having each shot just be drenched in beauty. Each frame really did resemble a painting in that sense. The highlight of the film, however, is seeing Jean-Pierre Leo take up the role of the dying king. You might know Jean-Pierre from his much, much earlier work as the little boy in The 400 Blows. Oh,
1: wow. Yeah,
0: so that's one of my favorite French New Wave movies. He is now 72 years old, um, but was once a figurehead in The French New Wave, and he gives a really great performance in this film. It is directed by Albert Serra. And now on to some upcoming deadlines and events. We have some grant deadlines and challenges for you this week. The Knight Foundation Journalism 360 Challenge has a deadline on April 10th. So, if you have any ideas for how to use immersive technology to enhance the field of journalism, the Knight Foundation, Google News Lab, and the Online News Association are partnering to launch this open call for ideas, and they're offering up to $35,000 in funding to test, refine, and build out a project. They are interested in exploring how virtual, augmented, mixed reality, and 360 video are opening new opportunities for journalists to connect with audiences. In particular, they're interested in how this tech allows people to interact with their surroundings and takes them places that they would otherwise not be able to go. So if you're on the cutting edge of 360 stuff, this sounds like a good thing to get into.
1: On April 10th, you can apply to be an Academy Nickel Fellow. Now, the Academy Nickel Fellowship in Screenwriting is one of the most prestigious screenwriting awards out there.
0: I'm just going to say that this is like one I've heard of again and again from my friends who are trying to write features and who have actually had some success. A lot of these guys are like at festivals when I'm talking to them, so they have had some success and they actually attribute it to being a Nichols Fellow. Um, It almost seems like a prerequisite for breaking onto the scene in that way.
1: Yeah. I I had a friend who basically said that verbatim at South by Southwest. Mm In addition to the prestige, the Academy Nichols Screenwriting Competition awards up to $535,000 fellowships to amateur screenwriters. So to enter, all you have to do, all you have to do is just write a movie yeah. <laughs> and pay the entry fee via the online application. Another writing festival is coming up too, right?
0: Yeah, the Slamdance writing competition has a deadline on April 10th as well. Not as prestigious as the (laughs) Nichols Fellowship, but uh, it's a nice little festival, Slamdance, and it takes place every year in Park City at the same time as Sundance. They welcome screenplays in every genre or any topic from anywhere in the world. It's a competition program, and it has four categories and gives awards to the top three of each, plus a grand prize. Also, every entry gets feedback.
1: That's a great plus.
0: Uh Uh-huh. And now moving on to some festival deadlines, the Leeds International Film Festival has their early bird deadline on March 31st. This festival takes place in the United Kingdom, in Leeds, from November 2nd to the 16th. And if you're all, why Leeds? Well, you should know that the world's first moving images were shot in Leeds in 1888 by Louis Le Prince.
1: I'm so glad we asked why Leeds.
0: Yeah, why Leeds? Another reason why Leeds is because the fest has been running for 31 years and is a qualifying event for both the Academy Awards and BAFTAs. It presents nine national and international competitions for short films with total cash prizes of over $5,000. On April 1st, the early bird deadline is happening for the Cork Film Festival, which takes place in Cork County, Ireland from November 10th to the 19th, so if you wanted to, you could feasibly attend both of these in November if you were trying to do a little festival circuit of the UK. This one has been running for a whopping 62 years and is also an Academy Award Qualifying Festival, as well as being a BAFTA and European Academy Award Qualifying Festival.
1: Back on American soil, Doc NYC has a deadline of April 7th. It takes place in New York City from November 9th to 16th. It's also an Academy Award Qualifying event. And this is America's largest documentary festival, and it is huge. Hundreds and hundreds of films play at this festival. Um, It takes place at some really great venues like the West Village's IFC Theater, Chelsea's SBA Theater, and Sinopolis, Chelsea. It also includes the fantastic Pitch Perfect pitch event, where selected projects will be given 10 minutes to pitch, including a trailer or clip, and 15 to 20 minutes of feedback from an industry panel as part of the industry programming. If you've got a short film you're looking to get into festivals, one of your best bets outside of the main Sundance South by Southwest circuit is the Palm Springs International Short Fest, which has a deadline of April 1st. This is the late deadline, so get your short in quick. It takes place from June 20th to 26th, and it's a seven-day competitive festival that screens approximately 330 films from 47 countries in a series of 90-minute programs. In a step we've seen from many short fests of late, the festival no longer prioritizes premiere status when selecting films for competition, so keep that in mind. It's an Academy Award qualifying festival, and it has 20 competitive categories with Prize money, film stock and production services valued at over $70,000. That is a hell of a lot for a short film festival. Yeah,
0: it's a big short film festival. And it's cool that they also are uh, joining the rest of these uh, major festivals, too, like Sundance, um, who are not being picky about premiere status for shorts anymore. So you can just put your shorts up online and not have to worry about whether or not you're going to be selected for a festival or not, which is great. So that about wraps up our show this week. I'm now going on vacation for two weeks, so I won't be here next week or the week after. And in fact, none of us will be here next week. Instead of an Indie Film Weekly show, we're going to be putting out our final Sundance episode, uh, which features Oakley Anderson Moore interviewing a few of the crew members. Uh, I can't remember if they're directors or DPs for this movie, uh, Miyubi, which actually, with a 40-minute runtime, has the unique distinction of being the longest VR film ever made, which is pretty cool. So stay tuned for that next Thursday. And on Monday, we're getting a little confusing here, but on Monday, we will be releasing... A episode from South by Southwest, which is sort of like the sequel to our "How to Get Your Short into Sundance" roundtable that we did back in Sundance. It was a great episode. Uh, this episode is "How to Get Your Midnight Short into South by Southwest." So it's me talking to a bunch of directors and producers. Um, we all get together to sort of talk about our our experiences um, and the steps that they took to get their midnight short in 2 South by Southwest, and we also have a, a nice discussion about what it means to be a midnight short and stuff, so it's really great, it's a good episode. Stay tuned for that on Monday.
1: Keep in touch. Feel free to quote Donnie Darko at me, at EL Booter.
0: Yeah, and I am at Jim underscore John underscore gym. Jim,
1: <laughs> that's
0: only you. It's kind of nice when it's just one person, it's not as overwhelming. Remember to subscribe to the No Film School podcast on whatever podcast platform you prefer, And give us a five-star rating if you like us. Give us a three-star rating even. We'll take it.
1: Yeah, but we'll judge you.
0: Yeah. We won't like you as much. (laughs) (laughs) But I guess it's anonymous. So until next week, or really until I guess two weeks from now, enjoy yourself.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Enjoy yourself. Oh, my God.